1961. I want to tell you about a very unlikely leader. Now, for a moment, I want you to uh, just imagine this this scenario. Uh, Imagine a group of computers in a room, but these are not mainframe computers or desktop computers. They're what was called in 1961 human computers. A lot of people in 1961 were wanting to make quick mathematical calculations. For instance, let's say that you wanted to make a huge ship or a spacecraft, and you needed somebody to make engineering calculations very quick. You could not go to your computer. Uh, What would you do? You would give a problem to a human computer, and that human computer would run calculations at his desk, and that human computer would give you the answers. You would go to your supervisor, and your supervisor would deliver those answers to the engineers who needed the information. There were vast rooms with human computers in them back in the 1960s. So I want to introduce you to a very unusual human computer. Her name is Katherine Johnson. Katherine Johnson was a human computer working at NASA in Langley, Virginia, and she was an incredibly gifted mathematician. She was different than everybody else. For starters, she was a woman, and there were very few, if any, female human computers in Langley in 1961. And she was also African-American. Katherine Johnson struggled in her position there because of discrimination, both female and because she was African-American. She was demeaned, she was inconvenienced, she was not allowed to use the nearby women's restroom. Nevertheless, she excelled in her work with the Mercury spacecraft launch, especially the launch made by John Glenn. Uh, Catherine designed an equation that would precisely guide the capsule during reentry. Whose capsule? John Glenn's capsule. And uh, during um, this first Friendship 7 uh, launch, uh, Dorothy Vaughn, also female, also African-American, discovered that the IBM computer, the machine computer, was wrong. Now think about that for a second. Here's a human computer making a calculation with a machine computer, and the machine computer, she thinks, that's wrong, that's wrong. So what did they do? They went to Katherine Johnson, and they said, Catherine, can you please figure this out? So there's Catherine figuring it out, and there's the equation that she used. I'll leave that up there for a little while, because I know some of you are going to kind of want to work that out in your, in your head, right? You're, you're, you're kind of thinking, oh, wait, I think, I think I know the answer to that, to, that, to that question. That's what she did all day long. <clears throat> now, uh, Catherine was, was so gifted at this that when... Um, Glenn is orbiting planet Earth, they run into a problem. John Glenn had already said, I want Catherine on site at mission control. They ran into a problem. Who did they go to? They went to Catherine Johnson. And Catherine Johnson um, did some quick calculations and says, says, okay, let's leave the retro rocket attached to the heat shield for reentry 
as further protection. They did that. Her instructions proved correct, and Friendship 7 successfully landed. And from then on, John Glenn said, uh, I want Katherine Johnson. She's still alive. She became a very unlikely leader from the standpoint of the 1960s. Um, she received half a dozen honorary doctorates, co-authored 26 scientific papers, became the go-to person for most of the complex problems, including Neil Armstrong's landing on the moon. A very unlikely leader. And the whole point of John chapter 6, 1 through 21, is that Jesus is a very unlikely leader. First of all, if you've been following us in the Gospel of John, he has been rejected by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's been rejected to the point where people are thinking, we might want to kill him. He was also very unlikely because he didn't look the part. If you remember Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 and 2, or 53, verses 1 and 2, he just didn't look the part, says Isaiah. He's not the kind of guy who would have been on the cover of Gentleman's Quarterly magazine. He's not the kind of person who would be the sexiest man alive person on the cover of People magazine. He didn't look the part given the culture of the first century. He was a very unlikely leader. So what John the Gospel writer does is he shows us the amazing leadership qualities of Jesus, and he does it in a very clever way. John 6, 1 through 21 functions like a three-act story about leadership. Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 are all designed to show us something about the leadership of Jesus. Act 1 is the feeding of the 5,000. And Act 1 goes like this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people might eat? So let's just set the scene for this. It's the spring of Jesus' second ministry year. His disciples are immersed in ministry all around the Sea of Galilee. And one day they sail east to the region of Bethsaida, and somebody on shore notices. They look out, on the sh uh, look out to the sea and they say, there, there's Jesus out there. There are the disciples out there. They're, they're headed to a certain wilderness area. Let's go follow. And so people began to follow. They're coming for all the wrong reasons. They're coming for, for the signs, for the special effects, for the miracles, for the buzz of being around Jesus. That's what they're coming for. And when I thought about this passage, I thought a little bit about, about Beatlemania. Uh, we just saw, Sydney, I just saw the, uh, the Beatles' uh, eight, uh, eight Days a Week um, movie by Ron Howard. That is a great movie, by the way. It is a very, very good movie. Came out about, uh, I don't know, eight, about eight months ago. But, you know, the whole Beatlemania thing was people just wanting to be around the Beatles. It was the buzz of the Beatles. What would you do if you actually got to, you know, hug John, Paul, George, or Ringo? Like, what then? People wanted a piece of them. 
People wanted a piece of Jesus because there was so much buzz about, about Jesus. And so the crowds begin to come. Uh, Jesus parks the boat. They climb up the large hill overlooking the sea. And there on the windswept fields of the Sea of Galilee come 50 people, then 100 people, then a thousand people, then 5,000 people, then 10,000 people, then 25,000 people. It's huge. And I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Rod, it's not the feeding of the 25,000, it's the feeding of the 5,000. But you remember that 5,000 men were there, and there were women and children there as well. 5,000 just included the men. So, what does 25,000 look like? It looks like a pretty good crowd at a basketball stadium. That, that is a big crowd. And there were huge crowds. Josephus tells us that there were a quarter million people living in and around Galilee in the first century. That's a huge crowd that are there and they want something from Jesus. So Jesus intentionally tests his disciples. How well have they been listening to him? So Jesus turns to Philip and says, hey, Philip, where are we going to find bread to feed all these people? Now, Philip is from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the nearest city. So if anybody knows where the nearest catering spot is, it's Philip. So Philip's thinking, okay, I've got Dink's uh, Bethsaida in my, in my phone here, and I can call them, and maybe they can deliver uh, you know, food for 25000 Maybe. I don't know. I mean... Yeah, like Philip is thinking, wow, like Jesus, what are you even talking about? <laughs> I mean, nobody has the ability to make food for 25,000 people. Jesus is, is testing them. Do you hear any contempt in Philip's voice as Philip responds? There's a little bit, you know, of like, what are you even talking about? So then, so then Andrew pipes up. And Andrew notices that there is this, this little kid who's got five barley loaves and two fishes. And if Andrew were talking today, he says, okay, so here's this kid over here who's got, he's got five Ritz crackers and an open can of sardines. But like, that's, what's that going to do? That's what, they're incredulous that Jesus would even ask. What should they have done? Well, what, what had Jesus taught them? Give us this day, our daily bread. He taught them how to pray. They're in need of daily bread. What should they have done? They should have depended upon Jesus for daily bread. So Jesus has everybody sit down, sit down on the, on the grass. And, and notice what it says if you're following it. It says, there was much grass there. That is a very important little detail, much grass. John is about to show us how Jesus is a fabulous leader, given our understanding of the Old Testament. Much grass would have triggered something in the minds of the initial readers, and what it would have triggered is Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? In green pastures. 
people reading the Gospel of John in the first century would have gone, wow, that, that that's, reminds me of, of Psalm, Psalm 23. For the rest of this passage, John is going to show Jesus' greatness as compared to David and as compared to Moses. So the miracle begins. Jesus begins to break off pieces of bread, hands them to his disciples. As he breaks off pieces of bread, more bread appears, and the disciples come and deliver bread. How long would it take you to deliver bread to 25,000 people? A very long time. This is a miracle that is lasting for hours, an hours-long miracle, a miracle where people are seeing in front of their very eyes God acting in supernatural power. Imagine how the disciples feel about this. The disciples go, this is, this is really cool, and they're delivering, they're delivering the bread. They go back to Jesus. This is amazing. After hour number two, they're high-fiving each other. This is, this is really, it's fun to be walking and living in the presence of, of God. Finally, everybody is feeling relaxed and feeling very good. And the crowds are beginning to process this miracle like, we didn't see big trucks come with Cisco on the side and deliver bread. I, when we were delivering things um, at Salvation Army at, at uh, Christmas time, there were these massive stacks of bread. And at one point, I was in the truck, and I was, I was grabbing these loaves of bread and putting them at the edge of the truck so that other people could take them and del deliver them to the people inside. There was none of that. And the people seeing this miracle realized there's none of that. And so they're thinking, like, like, like who, who is this guy? When everything is over, Jesus tells the disciples, okay, I want to go back and pick up the bread. And so he goes back and he picks up the bread. You can imagine the disciples, they're picking up these, this bread with these big baskets. And how many baskets did they have of leftover bread? How many baskets do they have? Twelve. So, like, what does that trigger for the disciples? Okay, twelve baskets, twelve baskets, twelve baskets. They're not immediately thinking about themselves. They're immediately thinking about the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve baskets for the twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve baskets for us. What's the lesson that they should have picked up? Jesus can miraculously meet my needs. But what, what happened at the first Passover? Moses delivered manna from heaven. Now, God was the one who did it, but it was through the leadership of Moses. God, through Moses, delivered this bread-like substance in the ground. What's happening now? Jesus, God in human flesh, is delivering bread for the crowds. Jesus is the new Moses. God is satiating the hunger of people through the Son of God. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is bigger than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the one who's, who provides the daily bread. And the disciples are staggering under the weight of all this leftover bread. They're realizing Jesus is the new Moses. Well, Maybe they're not quite getting that yet. That's what they should have picked up. Act one comes down to leadership. It's all, it's all about leadership. Jesus is better than David. David is the poet who writes about 
satisfying our hunger in the field. Jesus is the one who does satisfy our hunger in the field. Moses is the one who delivered manna from heaven through God. Jesus is the one who is manna from heaven, who delivers bread now. It's all about leadership. But let's cast our eyes back to the people on the mountain. Can, can, you, can you see the people all over the mountain there, the 25,000 people there? They start to talk. They start to talk, and there's a, there's a big buzz now, and they're shouting, and some are beginning to stand, and they're pointing at Jesus. They're pointing at Jesus, and they understood the meaning of the miracle. And the meaning of the miracle is that Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God, Moses says, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from, from your brothers. You must listen to him. The people who are up there on the hillside go, that's the prophet. That's the the one that Moses talked about. It's Beatlemania all over again. Because what they intend to do is go down to Jesus, lift him up on their shoulders like a Super Bowl champion, march him into Jerusalem, and make him the king of Israel. Did they understand the miracle? Mm, Not really. Not really. Not really. That brings us to Act 2. If Act 1 is Jesus being uh, miraculous in front of a large crowd, Act 2 is Jesus praying on the mountain. One verse. Act 2 is comprised of one verse. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Remember, they're already on the mountain, already on the mountain. And Jesus apparently is high and they're low. And Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain. Now, in Galilee, it's not actually a mountain like Mount Everest or K2 or the Matterhorn. It's a very high hill. But nevertheless, it's called a mountain for a particular reason. I cannot tell you how significant this was. Jesus is withdrawing to pray, and here's why. Come back with me for a second to 1446 B.C. Moses and the people of Israel are camping at the base of Mount Sinai. When God speaks, His voice booms like thunder. There's billowing smoke. There's, There's fire, and the people are terrified. They're absolutely terrified. So the people say to Moses, Moses, We don't want to hear God anymore. We're just so afraid. So here's our request. Moses, you go up the mountain. You go up the mountain and you listen to God for us. And then you relay God's message back to us. And that's what Moses did in Exodus 33.11. Exodus 33.11 says that Moses met with God face to face like a friend meets with a friend. So think about the symbolism. Moses met God on the mountain. Jesus meets God on the mountain. He withdraws from the misguided people below. He ascends to the top of this very high hill, and he's communicating with the Father. The people below got the vision all wrong. He's now on top of the mountain communicating with the Father. So what's Act 2 all about in this three-act story? It's about leadership. It's about leadership. Whereas Moses was an amazing human leader speaking with God face to face, Jesus is the divine leader 
the second person of the Trinity, and he's communicating with the first person of the Trinity about his vision and how that vision gets carried out. This prayer of Jesus on the mountain is a prayer of clarity, vision clarity. Jesus knows the vision. The people don't know the vision. And Jesus wants the people to know the vision, both the people, the crowds who are there on the mountain and the disciples who are about to be challenged again with leadership vision and act number three. That brings us to act three. If act one is a public event and act two is a private event, then act three is a small group event. In Acts 3, Jesus walks on water. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea became rough because the strong wind was blowing. Now, um, some of you have been to Israel and you've seen what it's like on the Sea of Galilee. But just imagine, imagine the scene. The sun, the sun is going down. Traces of light are slowly receding from the western sky. The crowds are dispersing from their homes. The disciples are waiting a bit, wondering, how long is it going to be up there on the mountain? Uh, we have to get home. We need to sail even though he's up there. Jesus will take care of himself. We need to sail, sail home. So they start to sail home. And about three miles out in the middle of the lake, there is this massive storm. I don't know if you can see the rainfall in the storm on the screens, but that is one intense front coming through. And because the Sea of Galilee has these canyons like wind tunnels, the cold air from Mount Hermon swoops down through these wind tunnels and it hits the tropical air of the Sea of Galilee. And sometimes you have these storms that are so violent, the Bible calls them earthquakes. And this apparently was one of those storms. They're, they're out there, they lower the sails, they begin to row, they're rowing with all their might, they can't make any bit of headway. And then Jesus comes, approaching the boat, walking on the water. Can you imagine you being there, <laughs> and you're an experienced fisherman, and you've been doing this for decades, and you're rowing your boat, and you see somebody walking towards you on the water. You're thinking, ah, what? I have no category for this. I have no category for this. Obviously, they're terrified. They think it's a ghost. They cry out in fear. It's Jesus. And he's walked over two lengths or three football field lengths on the stormy seas. And I promise you, it's not like he's going, okay, how do, you, how do you operate this thing? It's like a skateboard walking on water. Not doing that. He's confidently walking. So um, when he arrives, he does something that is stunning and amazing. He not only comforts them, he declares his identity. He says, don't be afraid. Now, in your Bibles, it says, it's me. I'm here. In the original language, it's very emphatic. It's don't be afraid. 
I am. What is he doing? He's declaring his identity as God. Don't be afraid. I am. Or literally it is, I am. Don't be afraid. Moses heard God's name in Exodus chapter 3. Moses revered God's name. Jesus claims God's name. Now things really get crazy because if you read this carefully, what you realize is that the moment he steps in the boat, the ship immediately reaches its destination. It's like, not like the boat zoomed across the waves like a 2018 Cobalt dual engine Mercury 250 engines. No, didn't, that didn't happen. They zoom across the lake. It's like it was instantly transported to Peter's dock. So, like, what was that all about? Well, maybe you've read this story before and you wondered, okay, why, why walk on water? What's, what's the point of walking on water? Well, the point is the comparison to Moses. Because what happened when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea? The waters divide. Moses and the children of Israel walk across the seabed as if on dry ground. The walls of water are all around them. And it takes a long time to get all those people through, through the Red Sea. Jesus does one better than Moses. Whereas Moses has the Red Sea parted by God, Jesus walks on top of the water. And whereas the children of Israel took hours and hours and hours to get to their destination, Jesus takes them immediately to their destination. What is John telling us in the story? What is, what is Jesus telling us in the miracle? I'm greater than Moses. Moses' ministry anticipated my ministry. Moses' leadership anticipated my leadership. Moses was the greatest leader in the ancient world for sure. My leadership is greater. My leadership is greater because I am, I am God, the God of the universe. So think about the story so far. Jesus provided bread just like Moses provided manna. Jesus ascended the mountain just like Moses ascended the mountain to speak face to face with God. Moses walked through the Red Sea. Jesus walks on top of the water. Moses took a long time to get to the destination. Jesus takes him there immediately. Nothing could be clearer. Moses was a great leader. I'm God. Moses heard about the name I am. I am. I am. It's a story about leadership. So what's the main idea of the story? What's the main idea of the story? If Jesus is your leader... The main idea is let him lead, embrace his leadership. To put it a little bit more completely, if Jesus is truly the greatest leader in history, then we need to let him lead us personally according to his plan. Um, to put it more specifically, that means we need to know his plan. That means we need to be willing to follow his plan. Rather than trying to control Jesus or force him into my human plans, I need to let God be God by discerning his plan and flowing with his plan in my life. So this is a th three-part story, three-act story, forces me to confront my wrong 
ideas about Jesus. See, everybody who was in the story other than Jesus had wrong ideas about Jesus. So what are some of the wrong ideas? Wrong idea number one is that Jesus exists to meet my needs. In the feeding of the 5,000, there's a reason why he only mentions 5,000 men and not the women and children. He's not being, not being sexist here. The reason why he mentioned that is that Roman legions were comprised of about 5,000 men. These men were incredibly well-trained and powerful. If you wanted to get something done, you called the Roman legion, and the Roman legion came, and they got it done, and nothing prevented them from getting it done. They got it done by the sheer power of human ingenuity. And John seems to be telling this, this collection of 5,000 men is ramping up human power. They've concluded that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. They've concluded that Jesus is the solution to their political problems. They're going to tackle him and lift him up and make him king by force. The number 5,000 here is all about ramping up human ingenuity to create a human solution. Why? Because they have political aspirations and they have specific needs and they want him to meet those needs in the context of a human solution. That's not Jesus' agenda. Jesus' agenda is the kingdom. I want to remind you that Jesus' kingdom is, is already here and it's coming. It's now and it's not yet. And what Jesus wants the disciples and the people to do is live in the presence of the kingdom presence of Jesus, like right here, right now. Wanting the disciples to say, Jesus, we, we can't produce this food, but you can. We're depending upon you for daily bread. That's what he wants. But they, they're not thinking about living in the present kingdom expression right here, right now. If you're trying to control Jesus, because you have an agenda, you're not living under his lordship. And guess what? Every, every one of us in here has done that from time to time. And then that may be the course of our, of our whole life. Our course of our whole life is, Jesus, I got my plans. Bless him, please. Bless him. Jesus, I, I, got, my, I got my five-year plan. Bless it. Jesus, I got my plan for my vacation. Bless it. As opposed to saying, Jesus, uh, you are sovereign over the affairs of life. I live in your kingdom presence. Here's where I think I want to go. Here's where I think our family wants to go. Here's where I think our company wants to go. Lord Jesus, I'm open to any changes in this. I want to submit our family, our, my work, everything to your lordship. I want to flow in your leadership. Will you please show me where you're going and then, and then bless your work in our life? whole different mindset, whole different mindset. That's the mindset that Jesus wants us to flow into. Here's a second wrong idea. My work life and my spiritual life are different. I got my work life over here. God's not concerned with that. I got my spiritual life over here. Oh, he's really concerned with that. And I've got two different two different lives. So consequently, we think, I don't, I don't need to bring Jesus into my work life. Like, why? I'm trained, I'm good, getting better. In the parallel account of Jesus um, walking on the water in Mark, the disciples 
don't pray to Jesus in the storm. They could have done it. Jesus had previously stilled a storm in Mark 4. He just stood up in the boat and said, peace be still. So this is the second event in a stormy sea. Why didn't they pray to Jesus during the second storm? Mark 6.52 tells us, the disciples did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. In other words, the idea is they should have prayed, but you think maybe they were separating their work life from their spiritual life and didn't know that they could trust Jesus even in their work. Remember Luke chapter 5, the same thing happened. Jesus had been teaching in Peter's boat. Jesus says to Peter, look, let's row into the center of the lake. They get out of the center of the lake and Jesus says to Peter, okay, Peter, throw down your nets for a catch. Peter says, look, Jesus, like you're a really good preacher and all. I'm the fisherman. We've been fishing all night, caught nothing. I'm telling you, the fish are not biting. I've fished this lake for decades. The fish aren't biting. But if you tell me, can you see him rolling his eyes? All right. But if you tell me, preacher, if you tell me, I'll let him down, lets him down, the fish zoom into the net. And they can barely get the, get the fish out of the net. They got to call other people in. The boats are starting to sink. So the, the idea is we are to wed together our work life and our spiritual life. Everything is spiritual. Everything about your work is spiritual. Making copies at the copy machine is spiritual. How you interact with your subordinates, with your superiors is spiritual. How you work with clients and vendors is spiritual. The quality of the work you do is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And in these stories, the disciples seem to be separating the spiritual from their work life. Look, it, it's, it's all spiritual. And the God who is Lord over all wants to be Lord over your work life as well. Why? It all goes back to that statement he made right as he was at the side of the boat. I am. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So let's, let's look at how we begin to apply this. How do we live under the leadership of Jesus? Number one is you check your attitude when you face impossible situations. Disciples faced two impossible situations, feeding the, feeding the 5,000 or the 25,000 and the storm on the sea. Impossible situations often fuel cynicism. And if you want to live under Jesus' lordship, you've got to reject cynicism. Philip and Andrew both approached impossibility with a bit of cynicism. Philip said, in effect, Jesus, are you kidding me, buying food? No, no way we can buy food. He says, 60, well, the equivalent of $60,000 would not be enough to buy bread. That would be the modern equivalent. $60,000 is enough to buy bread. Yeah, like we have $60,000 uh, in our cash box. We don't have that. Cynicism. Likewise, Andrew said, Jesus, we have some uh, crackers and sardines here. <laughs> like, that's going to do any good. It's cynicism. Where did the cynicism come from? Mark 6.52 says, says, it came from a hard heart. 
And many times in impossible situations, we grow a hard heart. We grow a cynical heart. We roll our eyes at God. God, this is your fault. God, why are you doing this to me? God, why does this always happen to me? We grow a hard heart. In reality, God often tests us with impossible situations. Tests us like proving gold. Tests us like refining gold. That's how He tests us. We face health scares that seem impossible. Anybody had something like that? A lot of, a lot of people have. The C word, cancer, seems like an impossible situation. We face marriage situations that seem totally impossible. Like, Lord, this is not going to work out unless you do a miracle here. We face career issues that seem impossible. We face financial setbacks that seem impossible. What's God up to in these times? He's refining us like gold. You turn up the heat to melt gold. And what happens to the impurities in the metal? Rises to the top, and it can be skimmed off so that the gold is purified. Impossible situations test us in the sense of a jeweler refining gold. God loves us. He wants us to radically trust Him. He wants us to do spiritual warfare. He wants to walk in the Spirit. He tests us. And if we really apply this the way the passage says, what we should do, be doing is praying for a miracle and doing the next thing. That ought to be our attitude. Lord, I'm praying for a miracle here, and I'm going to do the next thing. Lord, I'm praying for supernatural intervention here, and I'm going to do the next thing. Lord, I'm praying for dramatic intervention, and I'm going to do the next thing, anticipating you to work. There are some times where God will intervene dramatically and you will see it. There's other times God will intervene dramatically and you will not see it. I've heard stories of people who, who told me they prayed about something and it seemed like things sort of kind of worked out. And then they found out years later that behind the scenes something dramatic took place and they were the beneficiary of it even though they didn't know it at the time. That's kind of cool. Walking by faith means we realize God... God intervenes even when we don't really know when He does. Here's the second takeaway. second takeaway is to cultivate a taste for God's kingdom. People certainly had a taste um, for the miraculous bread. Um, the people certainly had a taste for the miraculous signs, but the signs weren't connected to Jesus' kingdom values. In other words, they, they wanted the, the signs, give me that bread, yes. They did not want to walk in the kingdom values of Jesus. Now, let me tell you something really interesting. Um, there are a group of uh, psychologists and nutritionists at Cornell University who have done experimentation on how to turn on and turn off tastes. They did this because they were, they were recognizing that some people who, if they didn't change their diet, they were, they were, they were going to die. So they're experimenting. How do, you, how do you turn on and turn off taste? Because you know how some people say, I just have to have my cheese. I love my pepperoni pizza. I love chocolate. I love brownies. 
So these folks who were struggling with severe illness, if they did not change their eating habits, they were going to die. So they're trying to figure out how, how do you turn on, turn off tastes? And they did a lot of experimentation on this, and they showed how you can turn on and turn off taste. It's now a very well-studied phenomenon. You can do the same thing with God's kingdom values. You can turn on your taste, your appetite for kingdom values. You can turn on a love for prayer, for instance. You can turn on a love for God using your work as mission. You can turn on a passion for service in your life. You can turn on love for family in your life. You can turn on skills for healing prayer in your life. You can turn on kingdom values. But what it takes is it takes a step in the kingdom value direction and trust. And then another step and then trust. But if we're going to live under the lordship of Jesus, we have to turn on those kingdom values through trust and obedience. Here's a final takeaway. The final takeaway is see people as eternal beings who need salvation and growth. Look, there's a little fascinating detail to the story. In John 6, 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes. The same expression is used in John 4.35. He commanded the disciples to lift up their eyes. In both cases, the lifting up of the eyes is seeing people, the crowds, with spiritual eyes. Seeing the crowds with a spiritual lens. Seeing the crowds from the standpoint of hurting people who need salvation, who need the power that Christ gives. Jesus had those eyes. Jesus commands his disciples to have those eyes. Jesus commands us to have those eyes. So you can be around people and you look at them from a worldly standpoint and you can say to them, I want nothing to do with them. You can say to them, I'm irritated by them. You can say, say to them I, about them, I just don't have any interest in interacting with them. What Jesus is, is saying to them and to us is it's really important for us to have spiritual eyes where we see people the way God does, as people who are loved by the Father and people who need Jesus. And so this third, third takeaway is, is all about how do we see people spiritually as people of dignity made in the image of God to whom we can reflect the life of Jesus. So here's Jesus, this very unlikely leader, and here's Katherine Johnson, this very unlikely leader, who for decades became a major leader in NASA, especially on technical issues. I know that all of you know how that reentry thing works, right? You guys know how that works? This is, the, this is where Katherine Johnson lived her life. And she was the go-to person for half a dozen astronauts who said, Catherine, have you bought, on bought, bought off on this? If you have, I'm good. I'll go up in space. She was an unlikely leader. Jesus, too, was a very unlikely leader. God calls us to live under the lordship of this unlikely leader. Let's stand for closing prayer.
<clears throat> Father God, um, I want to pray, Lord, for those in the congregation this morning who, um, who say, oh, I just don't know if I want to live all the time under the Lordship of Christ. Lord, I, in our humanity, we all, we all have these areas where we say, yeah, I'll live under Jesus' lordship there, but maybe not over here. Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to want, to want you to be Lord over those lives. If our lives were like a house, it's like we got closets and rooms that are, that are ours, and Jesus, don't you go in there. But Lord, I, I just pray that all of us here would just, we would want to want you to be Lord of every area of our life. Lord, give us the grace to move in that direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer team is going to be up here. They'd love to pray.